Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about being a tree. First off, a quick note of explanation, if not apology. I feel like I've been a stranger in inappropriate conversations over the last three or four weeks. And a lot of that just comes down to being crazy, crazy busy. Not just at work, but also at church. Things that I wanted to accomplish before um, spring came, which ironically, spring never really came. I had a friend a couple years ago who had mentioned that anymore in the part of the United States that we live in, the weather turns pretty abruptly from winter to summer. And that's certainly what it feels like right now here. Although I really can't complain about how mild the winter was. It almost wasn't a winter. But here we are. It's springtime and the whole daylight savings time thing has happened and I feel very behind on my schedule. I am still trying to make a social media presence though and I think I need to make a note there. Anybody who listens to Inappropriate Conversations who is on Facebook and hasn't visited the Inappropriate Conversations page should. There is a, there's a page for Inappropriate Conversations. It's classified as a cause. And I do put links, things that are sparking me to think, things that I may not want to share to uh, a non-podcast-based audience go there, along with the links to every show that I post now or at least I have been since I set up the page a few months back. And also, it wasn't that many shows ago that I made a specific mention to still, at that time, not being on Twitter. But that's been remedied. I am on Twitter, and especially in the last few weeks when I I know I've had material I've been wanting to put out and things I've wanted to say, and I just haven't been able to find the time to get it done, I have been trying to engage on Twitter. Um, To find me on Twitter is very simple. It's IC underscore Greg. There's an inappropriate conversations icon there that you'll you'll recognize it if you see it, if you've ever visited the Podbean site. So ways to get a hold of me, slightly expanded. There's a Facebook page for inappropriate conversations. On Twitter, I'm IC underscore Greg. Email has it always has been is IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. And of course, the the website itself is a Podbean website, uh, HTTP colon slash slash inappropriate conversations.podbean.com. So even though I know that the output has been limited here, at least compared to the pace that I said initially, I'm still engaged and I'm still trying to be engaging. I'm just doing it in different ways. Um, And I'm hoping to have a, a little more regular output in the month of April. Today's show, though, what does it mean to say, well, let's have an inappropriate conversation about being a tree? Well, really, it has everything to do with World Storytelling Day. I had set a personal goal to myself that I missed completely yesterday. Today is March 21st. Yesterday, March 20th, was World Storytelling Day, and the theme was trees. And my thought was, can I, uh, maybe by shortening the length just a little bit and being focused, can I record a show and get it edited and up on the website all in one day. And it seemed like a really good idea to try that kind of experiment and doing it all on World Storytelling Day and making the show about the World Storytelling Day theme this year. 
this isn't the first time I've done something on World Storytelling Day. If you go back to the very beginning uh, releases of the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, back at a time when the sound quality is, I am certain, uh, painfully a work in progress, uh, I'm sure from memory and from those times when I've gone back and tried to confirm what I said when and where, that the first 20 probably shows have a clear evolution in sound quality as I went from being somebody who had never plugged a microphone into his computer before to somebody who's been now doing this on what seems like a fairly regular basis and yet still doing it as a single speaker program, not trying to take yet, not trying to take on the challenge of mixing um, my voice with another voice recorded from some other location and trying to make that sound right. seems like sometimes I'm doing all I can to make myself sound, quote, right, unquote. But the third of those inappropriate conversations was a World Storytelling Day focus. The theme that year, a couple of years back, was light and shadow. And uh, what I chose to do there really was the first time I pulled together the format of inappropriate conversations. The first show was literally just a test, a way of introduction, a statement of intent. The second one introduced the concept of different drummer and talked a little bit about uh, my background and, and an alter ego named the author. And it was really with that third show that I kind of pulled it together and said, this is kind of what I think it's going to go like, uh, the first real feel of an inappropriate conversation show. And so here I am again a couple of years later uh, with World Storytelling Day again available as a theme because I wanted to keep this one fairly simple and say, hey, I've got some thought. If you said, uh, can you tell a story on the topic of trees? Go. Well, the fact of the matter is I can tell a story on the topic of trees. And before I jump into it, I'd just like to kind of clarify that to me, genuine storytelling in the sense of like a world storytelling day, genuine storytelling can't be pigeonholed into uh, it must be fiction or it has to be a true story, like an anecdote. It can fall anywhere in between those two. It can be something that feels like a testimony, which fair warning I'm going to head in that general direction just, just a bit because it helps make – to me, it helps make the story make sense, the story that I want to tell anyway. Um, so storytelling, I think, runs the gambit between fiction and nonfiction. And uh, I'll be crossing that line a bit here, but you know, more, more on the nonfiction side. This is, in other words, a true story. A few years back, more years than I probably care to think about, but within a decade – my boss's boss came to see me. Now, when you're in an office environment, the kind of office environment where Dilbert cartoons are either genuinely funny or just a little too true to be funny, when your boss's boss comes to visit you, um, kind of a big deal. Uh, a level's being bypassed. Uh, you're having a conversation with somebody you might normally um, have a buffer between. And I had a great relationship with this guy. Good sense of humor. Um, very, very bright. And you could tell that he had come to me specifically with a mission. This wasn't something he wanted done that was going to be delegated uh, to just anybody. And I was the guy who happened to be in the office when he was looking for, uh, for help with something. No, we were about to do an interview process to hire somebody who would become a peer of mine eventually. We're bringing in a new analyst. And he was worried that the interview process, especially as the interview process was being done by the other people who were going to be scheduled to talk to the prospective candidates, was going to be just a little too by the numbers, a little too stuffy, a little too serious, um, focused 100% on can you do the job? Or perhaps in his case, if he had an interview scheduled, uh, he was going to take the opposite approach and just kind of get, 
get a feel for the person. And that was his approach. He wanted to get a feel for the person. And um, I had a reputation for being a very tough interviewer. I would actually speak to people um, after we'd gone through the interview process. Uh, people we hired, more often than not, is how I'd hear things. And they would say, hey, you know, that interview went a lot better than I thought with you because – you know, I was petrified. I'd, I'd heard that you were such a, a challenging person. You were a difficult interviewer. And I think that reputation probably came from when I was in the stores. If we were hiring, especially when you had to fill more than one spot at once, uh, kind of ramping up for the Christmas holiday selling time in, our, in a record store, or dealing with the inevitable hiring that happens at the end of the college school year, at the end of the spring semester, when you might be you know, transforming your staff a little bit as people who are working their way through college are now going on to get what they might call real jobs. Um, whenever I had a lot of interviews to do, our first interview would be short and sweet, 15 minutes usually, all about what was on the application, what was on the resume. Um, I was interested in did you have appropriate conversation? What was your last job? Have you left that job? Why did you leave that job? You know, really just – you know, why, maybe one question about why you're interested in doing the job you've applied for, but really more about me making sure that this person um, has been uh, detailed and accurate enough in either their application or their resume that I can use that to make a decision about who I want to spend an hour with. Because for me, the second interview process, and think this through, this is the second interview process for somebody who's going to be tearing tickets at a movie theater or popping popcorn or somebody that is going to be at a record store stocking shelves and ringing the cash register. Why in the world would you spend an hour with that person? Well, I wanted to get out of the interview process knowing enough about who that person was in a uh, simulated sort of work situation that I could be confident that when that individual was acclimated to our particular store and fully trained – that they would take care of the customer, that they would do a good job. And people who we interviewed and we ultimately didn't hire, you know, when you whittle down the number of applicants down to the two or three people you give this sort of elaborate second interview to, the ones you don't hire, hey, they at least leave with a sense that, hey, this guy is the manager of the record store in town who is absolutely passionate, not just about music, but also about his customers, not just about movies, um, not just by the movies that are on a shelf, but the movies that are coming out. Um, he's got a 360-degree perspective about the customer's experience with the products that he's selling. And, of course, if we did hire you, I would leave that interview process with a pretty good foundation laid for the initial training. Um, what would I expect from you if a customer walked up and asked for something you'd never heard of before? That interview process was virtually a role-play simulation of how you'd handle the really tough questions. And it's, you know, I guess from that sort of how could you spend one hour interviewing somebody who might just be a Christmas time cashier and nothing more um, that gave me a reputation for being a tough interviewer. So maybe Chris wanted me to dial it down a little bit. Maybe he, he wanted me to, to interject a little bit of more levity into the way I normally conduct an interview. I don't think that was his reason, though. He came up to me and said, I need you to be the guy who asks the tree question. I looked at him like you may be looking at your computer or MP3 player with that. What the heck is the tree question? Look on my face. And I asked him, I said, what do you mean tree question? He goes, you can ask this anywhere you want to, but I need a commitment from you that you'll ask everybody we interview because you can't throw a question like this in and not, and not ask everybody to be fair 
Well, I don't even know if it, maybe it's even to be legal. You've got to throw this curveball at everybody. But theoretically, he said, at the end of the interview, when everything seems to be wrapped up, when you've asked about their computer skills and they've given you an example of things they've done in spreadsheets and things they've done in databases, ask them what kind of tree they would be and why. And I became the guy who asks the tree question. Now, part of the reason I'm telling the story now is that I've finally, after all those years, retired the tree question. I've gotten to the point where I'm interviewing people for positions that I've actually previously interviewed for positions. And the nature of the tree question, its entire point, its intent, is that uh, you're catching somebody off guard. Yeah, I had friends who've asked me why I still ask the tree question now that I'm no longer working for that, you know, in that same team anymore. And I said, I saw the value in it. Believe it or not, I've gone through interviews where you get to that last moment. And even if the person feels like they've done pretty well and you feel like they've done pretty well, I've had interviews where people have refused to answer the question. And maybe that was what Chris was getting at all along. I jokingly told him once, I said, uh, you know, I think it's a good question because every now and then in the work we do, somebody is going to ask you to do something that is totally nonsensical and completely idiotic. And you've got to figure out how to get a good result anyway. And being asked to tell somebody in a formal interview for a, a professional business position in an office, uh, what kind of tree they would be and why. Yeah, it kind of qualifies for that, you know, kind of surrealistic sort of bent, which, of course, I'm a surrealist. But the other thing about it is I've had interviews happen where I've raised that question at the very end and had somebody refuse to answer. Now, can you imagine you've pursued a job? You've gone through that process. You've done the resume thing. You're mentally writing a thank you note in the back of your head. You've answered all the questions that, have, that you've anticipated because they're the kind of questions you'd get about your background, your experience, um, how you would handle specific situations and uh, how you could demonstrate your ability to be a leader and, you know, all that. And you get to this last silly little question and you say, well, I'm not going to answer that. I, I don't think that's a question that deserves an answer. How likely is it you're going to get the job? In that situation, see, the thing about the tree question is it doesn't really matter what you say. There are answers that I've found to be better than others. I think, I think the oak tree answer, because you're tall and you're strong, is such a cliche that it's, it's almost meaningless. I've had people give me better tall and strong answers. Uh, sequoia tree, for example. Now, I don't know anything about trees. I don't have much passion about trees. Um, I'm willing to accept almost any explanation or justification that people give. The only real mistake you can make in the interview is to refuse to, to answer the question at all. Now, the best thing that you can do in the interview, well, that's the story I want to tell. We had an open position in one of the other areas. One of my peers was filling a spot, and it was a pretty important one. And we'd spoken to several candidates, and we'd generally been kind of unimpressed. But there was a candidate that the human resources department was not all that eager for us to talk with. And the number one problem was the salary that she was currently making was slightly higher than the salary that we wanted to offer. And we'd kind of made it clear that we probably weren't going to match. And uh, the human resources department, you know, the recruiting team, didn't feel like it was a good use of their time for us to be interviewing somebody that ultimately wasn't going to take the job over a money question. But the candidate pursued the position, said, 
all the right things about wanting the job anyway and not being as worried about the salary as they were about the location and being part of this particular company. And this was the right kind of career change. So we brought her in and we interviewed her. And in the course of the interview, because of the late hour, instead of each one of us independently taking a half hour and doing this interview with Marianne, we interviewed her together uh, just to try to consolidate it. I didn't want to horn in and take too much of the other, uh, the manager's time because it was, that was the hiring manager for this particular position. So I pretty much sat in, tossed in a couple follow-up questions along the way, but I was there mainly to ask the tree question. Now, there is no good reason why I remember that Marianne said she would be a weeping willow. Weeping willow is not a particularly special or important tree answer. And her reason for wanting to be a weeping willow was, it was good. It was fine. You know, Um, it's a large tree. It's pleasant to look at. It provides lots of shade. People find comfort in it. You know, it was, you know, the kind of thing you'd say when you're put on the spot with a question that is almost inconceivable in terms of how do you explain Why, when you don't really care about trees, how do you care enough about trees to get this job when you kind of get the sense that the person who's asking you the interview question doesn't really care about trees either? If you're as smart as Marianne was, you recognize that this is a question that you need to answer and that the answer isn't going to haunt you, right? So she gave me the weeping willow answer. Why is that the best answer to the tree question I've ever received? Because of her follow-up. As soon as she felt that I was satisfied with her reasons for wanting, quote unquote, wanting to be a weeping willow, she turned the tables on me very quickly and said, hang on a second. I have one more question for you. She'd already addressed things like, you know, you know, the strength of the company and my vision for the position and what what sort of the career path would be. But her one more question for me was, I'm going to need to know what kind of tree you would be and why. This has happened to me three times over the course of this five or six, seven year span. And every single person who's asked me that question has been hired. Not all of them have been hired to the position that I was interviewing for as uh, the fate would have it. Sometimes you're interviewing and that's not the best candidate, but that person stays in my mind. And I say, hang on a second. You know, somebody in another department on the other side of the company has an opening and that's a resume that finds its way in interoffice mail to that other hiring manager. And of course, in, you know, one of the occasions I hired for myself and another occasion, I recommended the person just directly. I said, this is the right person for the job you've got interview. You'll see. And a lot of it comes back to the kind of person we wanted to hire me and my boss from all those years ago was the kind of person who would deal with the tree question in exactly this way. I had a significant problem though. And if this problem makes me seem like a hypocrite, so be it. It had never occurred to me at this point in my career, at this point in the life of the tree question, it had never occurred to me that somebody might ask me the question back. And I've already said, I don't really care that much about trees one way or the other. I'm certainly uh, not a, you know, somebody who has a botany enthusiast or anything. And I couldn't initially think of an answer. And then it came to me. Out of the blue, the kind of answer that comes so spontaneously that it has to be genuine. And I said to her, well, I think I'd be a sycamore tree. I dodged the second part of her question because it occurred to me that I probably, if I was really and truly being honest, couldn't tell her why. She didn't let it go. 
She goes, ah, why would you be a sycamore tree? And I got a smile on my face that could only come from knowing that I'd figured out how to avoid a potentially dangerous situation. And I said, I'd be happy to tell you why I'm a sycamore tree, but I can't do it legally unless we hire you. A show where Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is up against Forbidden Planet, and somebody just voted for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Welcome to Game Fights, the Ponzi Scheme of Podcasting. I'm David Shaw. With me, as always, is Mr. Mike Ortiz. So, what are we fighting about this time, Dan? Best sci-fi movie of all time. Best token minority. Best animated TV series. Listen. We'll see how sharp everybody is at this point in the storytelling. Why in the world would there be a legal question about me answering the same question that I was perfectly and legally proper to ask her? Well, the one thing you can never introduce into an interview conversation. It's not just a question that you can't ask the person who's interviewing for the job. You can't introduce your own story either. You can't introduce religion into an interview question. And there's a very good reason why Sycamore Tree jumped into my head. Um, I later realized there were other good reasons. Uh, Canadian country singer Paul Brandt has a song called The Sycamore Tree, which I quite like. It's not my favorite song by him, but I quite like it. But no, this had to do with prison ministry. We're approaching not just the week that has World Storytelling Day in it, but a week when several friends of mine are going into a prison um, to spend a big chunk of three solid days, you know, engaging some of the residents of the correctional facility in, um, you know, in in Christian mission, uh, sharing their faith, interacting with these men, um, basically engaging in missionary work, for want of a better word, inside the prison. It's not the cliche you might think. I realize that there there are elements of prison work from Christians that we might, you know, get a kind of a scrunchy face about and have a lot of doubt. Now, this is a genuine Matthew chapter 25 type of prison ministry. And uh, I don't want to speak in terms of effectiveness because I don't, those are numbers that I don't think can be viewed as reliable. And I don't think that there's a, a teleological mission here. This isn't a give to get ends to means approach. It's a genuine, faithful, faith sharing approach. And the reason I know so much about it is that a few years before this you know, job interview with the tree question, well, maybe even just a, a year, I had participated in one of those mission trips inside the prison. It's the, the only time so far in my life that I've done that. I don't necessarily feel that it's my calling. And on this particular you know, trip into the, into the prison, I didn't have any important role other than the most important role of all, which is being part of a team. Uh, my job was to serve coffee and to serve tea and to, you know, you know, help, help people find their way, you know, from one room to the other. If we were breaking up into small groups, I was, you know, a, an usher or a waiter for one of a better word. Um, but I took the role very seriously because I'm the kind of person who would have a little bit of genuine fear about well, what does it mean to go into a prison? What, what about going into a prison? You know, some of that might make you uncomfortable, Um, And I think your faith has to be right to do that well. If you try to go in and do prison ministry and your goals are are misguided, if you're just trying to put a notch in your, you know, your belt of people you've converted, 
um, you might get eaten alive. You really genuinely have to have a servant's heart and a clear understanding that all of us have failed to live up to our potential. We have all fallen off the course that we need to be on and made mistakes. And some people have been um, unlucky or careless or just had the misfortune of making the kind of mistakes that put you in prison. Um, The prison ministry is never about what did somebody do or trying to make it right. It is certainly never about leveling accusation. It is about sharing, uh, truthfully, sharing the grace of Jesus Christ that all of us, in my opinion, as humans, need. All of us have something from which we would want to be forgiven. We've all made mistakes, in other words. Well, you know, I mentioned that the prison ministry approach is a three-day thing where you're going inside and you're spending basically 6 a.m. to 9 or 10 p.m. every night either preparing the room, uh, getting tables set up and so forth and so on, or cleaning up. And, of course, during the bulk of that time, a good solid 12 hours with the residents, um, you know, hitting two meals during that span with them. Uh, so a, a good solid immersion, right? But that's not the real workload. To me, the real commitment is both the time that you spend preparing to be this team going in in prison ministry and, of course, the commitment to follow up afterward. And that's the part where I knew I was probably going to be unable to successfully deliver. I wasn't going to be able to do it as well as I wanted to do it, to continue to be actively involved. It, it, it wasn't something that I was going to be able to give 12 months a year to or even nine months a year to. So – on the way in, though, I didn't miss a single meeting for more than 30, 35 days preparing ourselves to go into the prison. Now, what are we preparing ourselves to do? You know, we weren't, we weren't learning self-defense or anything like that. Some of the thoughts you might have is, well, I'm going into a prison. I better be prepared to handle myself. There is no preparing to handle yourself in that situation. Um, there's no physical conflict. Any, any physical conflict is a problem. Win, lose, or draw. No, it's preparing yourself spiritually to be – to have the right sort of servant's heart. One of the things we studied as a group, because you get together these meetings, you spend two or three hours once a week, um, sometimes talking through specific issues. Uh, you know, what what do we do if we spill you know hot coffee on somebody? How do you deal with that? How do you manage to to handle the rationing of sugar? Um, how much sugar is too much? Because you can't just drop a packet full of sugars on a table because sugars can be then taken by the inmates, pocketed, and then used to create um, a still of sorts. So they can be used to ferment. So talking about some of the nuts and bolts issues of how, how do you do this, what are the rules, what are the do's and don'ts, but a lot of it was spiritual growth, looking at specific Bible passages and finding where we were in that Bible passage. What does this story say about us as a group of men preparing to go into a prison, meeting a complete set of strangers, and dealing with that set of strangers in a way that would, you know, be true to the Holy Spirit, that would be a Jesus moment, not just for us, but also for them, that wouldn't be, um, you know, sort of a cavalier, um, uh, some, some sort of a holier-than-thou moment. One of the passages that we studied was from Luke chapter 19, right at the beginning of the chapter, and the story of Zacchaeus. I'll read you know, that passage as quickly as I can from the New American Standard translation. Jesus went to Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, 
and was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to this place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Now when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek the lost, and to save that which was lost. So then we would tell the story of Zacchaeus in this case, the tax collector who Jesus uh, came and specifically called by name the least liked and perhaps most sinful man in that small part of the community of Jericho, the small part of a much larger community. And we would sit around as a group and say, okay, you know, what do we do with this story? Why are we reading this passage to prepare us to go into a prison? And does anybody have any thoughts about the story of Zacchaeus? I raised my hand and I said, you know, one of my first thoughts about the story of Zacchaeus is I would be terrified if Jesus or anybody of a similar importance, if my boss's boss, for example, invited himself over to my house tonight. I don't have any idea that morning what my house is going to look like that evening. I've got teenagers for crying out loud. Uh, The place could look like a bomb just went off in it. And my first thought would be, there is no way my house is ever going to be clean enough for Jesus to come over. And what does it say about Zacchaeus that he was so quick and so willing to say, yeah, come on down? Would I react that way? Or would I have too much pride to be that open to make that sort of life-changing commitment that Zacchaeus made? That wasn't the real point of the story, though. That wasn't the takeaway. Um, That was just, you know, me sharing my own perspective and perhaps somewhat selfishly. No, someone else asked the question, if you look at the story of Zacchaeus again, in the context of preparing to do prison ministry, who are we as a group of men, as a community of faith getting ready to go into a prison, who are we in the story of Zacchaeus? Well, it was a good group of men. None of us were spiritually arrogant enough to have any sort of notion that we were the Jesus figure in the story. We're not Jesus. We were hopeful, in fact, that none among us would be the crowd deciding who should be, who should see the Lord and who shouldn't. And that, you know, judgmentally deciding that because this man was a sinner, he was a tax collector, he was known to rip people off in the transactions that he did, that he wasn't good enough to see Jesus. We were hoping that none of us were the crowd. But all of us sort of had this idea that maybe if we've got the right mindset, if we're doing this prison ministry thing right, that the residents of the correctional facility, the inmates, should be Zacchaeus. That that should be it. It should be all about trying to introduce our friend Jesus to this this group of people who were playing the role of Zacchaeus. People who, uh, who felt trapped, who were walled off, who society had shunned. People who might have to climb up a tree to even see Jesus, because 
their situation was so scornful that they had no shot of being face-to-face with Jesus in their current situation. And that's when a friend of mine rose his hand and said, we are the tree. If we do prison ministry right, and we choose to decide that we can be found in the Zacchaeus story, that the story of Zacchaeus can be translated into prison ministry, who are we? We've got to be the sycamore tree. We've got to be people who talk very little and listen as completely and fully as you can, who do not have judgment to cast, but who can stand strong enough and tall enough that we can help somebody whose situation seems and feels hopeless rise above the crowd they're in enough to hear a gospel message clearly enough that maybe, just maybe, for the first time, they'll come face to face with Christ. I tell that Bible story um, only for the purposes of explaining why the first thing that came to my mind was a sycamore tree. I didn't want to be the interviewer asking this potentially challenging, although undeniably silly question, uh, and give the same kind of cliche answer that I would have hated if I'd heard it. Anyone would say, well, uh, I'd be a, you know, a dogwood tree because uh, that's the state tree where I grew up. No, I wanted something real, something true. I wanted to give the kind of answer that as an interviewer I wanted to hear. So I gave the true answer of sycamore tree. But then it occurred to me all of a sudden that I probably couldn't give the honest and complete explanation as to why, because it's completely inappropriate and illegal to interject my religious beliefs into an interview. I'm not allowed to ask the candidate about their faith, and certainly sharing mine would be tantamount to the same thing. So I said, I'd be a sycamore tree, but it just occurs to me that I actually can't tell you why unless we hire you. So a few days went by, and we're getting phone calls from this candidate. Now, we left that interview. I'm sold. And the hiring manager was also sold. This is the person we want. We wanted to hire Marianne. But for whatever reason, we had a heck of a time getting our recruiter from our own company to call her and make her the offer. And the reason I've already stated, the offer was going to be, you know, a little bit of money, less than what she already made. And um, we finally had to call for a meeting and sit down face-to-face in the office of that representative of the Human Resources Department and say, if you don't call her and make this offer, we're going to bypass you. We're going to do it ourselves." Now, that's probably just as unwelcome as the, the tree question would be for, you know, human resources circles. But we, we were convinced this is the right candidate for the job. She wants the job. We want her to have the job. And all we really needed was for the officials to make the right phone call. We just needed the offer to be extended. And the recruiter that we were working with at the time looked at me and she said, I'm not going to make this phone call unless you can give me a good reason why I should. And the hiring manager sitting next to me, you could feel, you know, we're like a foot and a half apart, but you could feel her blood boiling from the chair across from me. You could, you could see the anger rising within her. And I said, I've got this one. I'll answer the question. Settle down. I looked at the HR person and said, I'll, I won't give you one good reason. I'll give you three good reasons. She works downtown. So being able to spare herself the expense of parking, the expense of the commute, the time of the commute is probably worth the dollar difference she's giving up in raw salary. Her parents live nearby. So it's not like she doesn't have roots here. You know, so this is, 
This is close to a home, close to her childhood home, even though she doesn't live right down the street today. And third, she is dying to find out why I'm a sycamore tree. And you know what? I don't know how far off I was. It was a moment of exaggeration, but it wasn't two, three weeks into her tenure when we actually hired her. She's not reporting to me. She's reporting to somebody else. Where we had one of those opportunities where you're sitting around eating birthday cake, you know, celebrating, you know, somebody's anniversary or whatever. And in that informal setting where we've, you know, you know, done the equivalent of singing for she's a jolly good fellow to somebody. Marianne did pursue the answer to that question. And I told her, um, without quoting chapter and verse of scripture, but I told her the reason why I couldn't tell her that I was a sycamore tree. Um, and I think that, you know, in our relationship, even though I wouldn't describe her as a particularly religious person, I think she liked the integrity with which I handled the potentially sticky issue of, of religion almost creeping into an interview where it shouldn't, where it doesn't belong. And um, at the same time felt like, yeah, I wasn't being a hypocrite. I had uh, a question I was asking almost every candidate for, for jobs in those intervening years, but I had an answer myself. I've since swished the question up. And I've changed it to something different. Still trying to be a little bit disarming. But, you know, again, kind of chopping down the tree question for now, perhaps for forever. But I still remember the challenge of making sure that if I'm going to ask somebody which mountain range they would be, I need to have an answer of my own. And that answer needs to have an integrity to it. Even if my reason for referring to a particular mountaintop or a particular mountaintop experience is something that I have to share only very cryptically and very carefully within the interview process. See, sometimes the power of a story isn't just in the part you tell. Sometimes the power in the story is in the part that you don't tell. And to me, that's a pretty good lesson and a pretty good reminder for World Storytelling Day. Today's different drummer is going to be a little bit of a different one for me, but I can't help but to think of this particular musician when I'm dealing with the, the idea of being a tree. Her name is Imani Coppola. She's an American singer-songwriter that in my mind defies genre. She is a violinist. She's a rock-slash-punk-slash-pop-slash-soul-slash-hip-hop performer um, who had a big hit in a career that was cut short by record label expectations. The reason, of course, I think of, of Imani Coppola on this particular topic for today is that the first song on her first album, her major label release called Chupacabra, is a song called I'm a Tree. And it has my all-time favorite use of a rock music sample in all of music history. Rap, hip-hop, rock, pop, whatever. She's taken the exact right part of a very good version of the Doors song, Soul Kitchen, and used it not so much for the soul that's in the title, but for the groove, and uses that particular piece as the background for violin solos, uh, guitar, bass, keyboard, just an absolutely groovy rhythm for an unbelievably surrealist song where the lead singer is essentially maintaining She's a tree, or 
she could be a tree. The line of dialogue that that, uh, I love the most is, everything around you is just part of every other thing. I am a tree. Well, Imani Coppola may as well be a tree, because in some ways she's every bit the enigma that the strange interview question that I've been asking all those years was. Uh, Her major label debut was as a success, in my opinion. She may not have hit number one, she may not have become the latest, greatest thing, but there was really no reason that I can think of for why she didn't get the freedom she needed to release her second album, as she intended to do. The first song I heard from her was not I'm a Tree. I actually was uh, privy to a pre-release video for Legend of a Cowgirl. Now, if you are familiar with Imani Coppola and you've already drawn mental images into your head or you're thinking of a song by her, it probably is that 1997 hit single, Legend of a Cowgirl. Kind of part country, kind of part rock, part funk, uh, with a a rap-slash-vocal style um, and no shortage of, of her violin playing in the mix as well. But The Legend of a Cowgirl was actually a hit primarily in my mind because of MTV. It was such an unusual presentation at the time for a singer beyond category with a video that was maybe not beyond category, but nevertheless appropriately surreal. And because I was working in the corporate office of a record label uh, for a record store at the time, the record label had sent us a copy of this video. And one of the questions that they had, and I'm not making fun of them, this is a legitimate question. Where do you think you will merchandise Imani Coppola? We ended up putting her in pop, I believe. But there was a lot of talk about whether she needed to be an R&B, whether she needed to be an alternative rock. Um, some very misguided folks had uh, maybe mentally penciled her into the rap section. That didn't make any sense. But she was enough of a genre bender that there might have even been people who thought, well, maybe because her big single is going to have cowgirl in the title, maybe we cross-merchandise her in country. This was a period in the late 90s where the record labels were obsessed with cross-merchandising. Because cross-merchandising essentially gave you a second location in a store. Meaning that if you had a CD that you would only normally stock one or two pieces of because it wasn't that fast moving after the initial buzz and hype of its release, if you could get the store to put the artist in two places, you would probably increase the average inventory that you put into the, to those stores' locations. In other words, you couldn't just carry one copy of you know, Shania Twain's self-titled first album, the one that came out before The Woman and Me, and didn't really produce a crossover single. The Woman and Me was her breakout album. You couldn't put just one copy of her CD in a store if Shania Twain was being merchandised simultaneously in pop and country. So I would always sort of resist the temptation to be too aggressive about cross-merchandising into multiple genres. You'd see it like with the contemporary Christian artists a lot, where people would want you to have Amy Grant in both contemporary Christian and in pop. The problem was, sometimes there wasn't enough justification to have two copies of everything by Michael W. Smith and two copies of everything by Stephen Curtis Chapman, even if you perhaps could justify having more superfluous copies on the shelf of somebody like Amy Grant. But in the case of Imani Coppola, even if we... Even if we all decided we were just going to put her in one location, it was a real question about where to put her. Now, for those of you who have listened to a lot of the inappropriate conversations, you probably already know that that's a tremendous character trait, uh, an artistic quality, to qualify you to be a different drummer. Because that's what I'm looking for. People who don't just redefine a genre, but in some ways blow up the entire concept of genre. 
but in the interest of confession. For an artist who's made one of my all-time favorite songs, and I'm a tree, and who's made me smile more times than I can mention on other tracks, like Love to See You Shine and Legend of a Cowgirl, I only have the one album. The record label, I think, correctly identified her incredibly effective use of samples and wanted her subsequent release to include a lot more samples. And she had decided, no, no, she really wanted all of her own music. She wanted to be um, you know, less reliant upon samples. And truly, the musician behind the songs in a much more real way for the second release. And apparently that led to a conflict that stopped her second album from coming out, or at least stopped it from coming out on a major record label. She wasn't helped by the fact that she was beyond genre. She's the daughter of uh, an interracial couple. She got a, you know, an Italian father and a, you know, a black mother and had many siblings. So the second youngest of maybe five kids growing up in the Long Island part of New York, now living in the Brooklyn part of New York. Um, so she had a, a lot to draw on. She was very much a human melting pot, right? But nowhere near as easy to market as somebody like Britney Spears. You can't look at an artist like Imani Coppola and say, well, this is that. That is who she is. It's much more complex than that. And sometimes that can hurt you. Because the hip-hop sensibility didn't necessarily buy her credentials as a hip-hop artist. And the fact that she was a very capable and talented um, college-educated violinist um, you know, might have helped her in classical music circles, but those skills didn't necessarily help her in pop and rock circles. And I, as a fan, I don't qualify. I was no help here at all. If I'm supposed to be the tree, this particular Zacchaeus of a musician was left standing on the ground because in one of what I would consider to be my bigger mistakes as a music consumer, I realized, and this is really just in the last few months, that she has not stopped making music. She put out a major record label debut. The record label dropped her and she disappeared. Well, she disappeared from my sight and from my consciousness, but it would be wrong to say that she went away in any sense of the word. She simply became an independent musician. She's done more works than you'll find if you look online. If you go to websites like allmusic.com, www.allmusic.com, you'll find that her discography lists um, albums released in 1997, Chupacabra, the one I do have, Aphrodite in 2004, the Black and White album in 2007. That, by the way, will be the next purchase I make online. The next electronic download of a complete CD will be that one. Decisions made is just a question of deciding I've got the time in this crazy schedule lately. But she has other albums and other EPs and other independent you know, songs she's put out into the internet in the years in between there. Now, if she was an independent artist all along, a truly indie artist, there's a chance I might have found her, attached myself to her with a great deal of enthusiasm and gobbled up all of the files that were available to me. But because she at one point in time was on Sony Music, the Columbia label, she's then disappeared from there, and I never really pursued her again as an independent artist. I didn't make the connection between being major label and then becoming independent after that. To me, independent at the time, and I'm working in a record store, I've got a bias. At the time, being an independent artist is something you do until you get the major label deal, and then you're a major label artist from that point forward. 
But Imani Coppola is a fantastic example of what happens when that's just not true. Her other major music project, the kind of thing that is available uh, in stores, um, is uh, Little Jackie. And the Little Jackie project has a couple of albums, including one just made this year. Her first one came out in 2008 called The Stoop. This is described on allmusic.com in a review by Tom Jurek as a sonic brain trust of singer-songwriter Imani Coppola and producer Adam Palin. And uh, it's got an old-school feel. It literally is music you'd hear on the stoop in, you know, in a New York City neighborhood. Um, she released the second one with uh, Adam in the Little Jackie name. That's called uh, Made for TV, and it literally just came out last year. So trying to catch up with her music... Uh, even the stuff that's available, there's at least four albums that I've just completely been unaware of that maybe now is the time for me to, to catch up on. I did go online to one of my favorite you know, um, online music retailers that sells you know, MP3 files and did find not just these major albums, but a few random tracks, including a track from perhaps the next upcoming release. So I've, I've got some things I've pulled there. And Imani Coppola has a website, and I'm pretty certain it's what you'd expect. It's probably www.com. I-M-A-N-A-C-O-P-P-O-L-A dot com. So there's a lot to catch up on. And I'm going to work to make that catch up happen because I feel a little bit bad about the fact that somebody that I would, if you'd asked me and said, hey, is she good? I'd say she's not just good, she's great. She's worth the time. If I can find it, I'll put a link up to a live performance of I'm a Tree. Now, live performances are what they are. Um, You're going to get a better sound quality, especially when sampling's involved from the album cut. And the truth is, the album Chupacabra is probably sitting in a used record store for a buck or two right now. Again, the uh, Legend of a Cowgirl song was popular enough that there was enough copies of that CD made and sold that they're still circulating as used records, and and it's a good disc. Um, So that's out there, and and that's worth pursuing. But it's also interesting to hear what what it comes down like when you play this kind of of genre-bending music live. And there's a track I saw on YouTube from the Jules Holland TV show, uh, Later, I believe is the name of the show, where she performs I'm a Tree in concert, including the violin solos. And again, you know, it's a, it's a live-on-TV concert. There's parts that could be better, but it's an impressive show and, and a way for me to say, hey, this is what this song that I'm... That I, I, so perfect for this topic today. This is what this song sounds like. The sun ain't hard to see. Just turn off your TV. Everything around you is just part of every other thing. I am a tree. So why the freak are you all staring at me? I'm a tree. Yeah, what a freak. I'm a tree. No, you're not. I'm a tree. Keep your head up. Keep your head up. Keep your head up, girl. Keep your head up. Because even if I didn't pay the right kind of attention in the last 12 years to what you're doing musically, Imani Coppola is a different drummer. It's interesting to face the challenge of what you would do if you were faced with a World Storytelling Day opportunity. Imagine yourself sitting around a campfire or a bonfire uh, with friends or new acquaintances. Um, and instead of deciding in advance that we're going to tell ghost stories, or if it's a family reunion, we're going to tell the old family stories, that somebody just says, hey, I'm going to throw out a topic. 
what's the entire idea of March 20th? On an annual basis, World Storytelling Day, you can find it on Wikipedia. The topic gets put up there, and it's a day for people to explore creatively the art of storytelling. You know, how do you do it? Do you do it with a religious intent? Do you do it with an intent to tell something funny and entertain? Or do you just try to do something aggressively creative or perhaps even spontaneous with a topic? A couple of years ago, that was light and shadow. This year, it's trees. And maybe, who knows, maybe a couple of years from now, I'll get to the month of March where my workload gets a little bit crazy and I have a hard time devoting myself to the kind of work I want to put into inappropriate conversations. And it may be another good opportunity to, um, to do it a little improv and just say, hey, whatever World Storytelling Day is about on March 20th, that's what I'll try to talk about. And maybe it'll lead me to a place even stranger than the idea of being a tree. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this inappropriate conversation or any other of our inappropriate conversations, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com and even now on Twitter at IC underscore Greg. Thanks for listening.